In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. Uh, some of the early pioneers uh, in Tulsa, some of the early black pioneers, came as early as 1889. Um, in fact, some came earlier than that. A few came on the Trail of Tears uh, in the 1820s, the early 1830s, with some of the tribes, uh, some of the five civilized tribes that came from the Deep South. A few made it during the run of 1889. You just heard author and historian Eddie Faye Gates describe how some of the indigenous people of America, as well as African Americans, came to settle in what is present-day Oklahoma, as well as Tulsa. She mentioned some pictures she saw of them as she toured the Mabel Little Heritage House while producing a documentary several decades ago in Tulsa. While a number of Native American tribes already inhabited what is present-day Oklahoma, many other natives arrived via the infamous Trail of Tears during the forced removal of tribes from the southeastern part of the United States. They eventually settled in what is known as Indian Territory in the 1800s. What is rarely mentioned in history curriculum is that several of these tribes possessed African-American slaves who also traveled along the brutal, often deadly Trail of Tears with them and also settled in Indian Territory during the 1800s. Many early Black inhabitants of what is now the state of Oklahoma, including Tulsa, formed a number of all-Black communities, due in large part to the treaties between the U.S. government and Native Americans that forced Native Americans to free their slaves and allot them land. However, many Blacks who were of Native American ancestry adopted many of the customs and traditions of the Natives. Some even continued to live in tribal communities. Dr. Bob Blackburn, you are the director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. Could you tell me about the organization and what its goals are? Yes, the Oklahoma Historical Society was created in 1893 by the Oklahoma Press Association to collect newspapers. Now, we expanded, of course, beyond that. We now have a 200,000-square-foot history center in Oklahoma City. We have 30-some museums around the state. So all things associated with collecting, preserving, and sharing Oklahoma history. Okay, great. So we're talking about the Tulsa Race Massacre, but your specialty is kind of setting up the events, historical events, and otherwise that created this perfect storm, so to speak, so that the Tulsa Race Massacre manifested into what the Oklahoma Historical Society has called the worst incident of racial violence in American history. So let's go all the way back to before statehood and talk about how the first inhabitants of Oklahoma came to be. And we do know that there were some Native Americans already living in Oklahoma or the territory and the uh, area we now call Oklahoma. Is that correct? That is correct. Because many of the tribes before 1803 in the Louisiana Purchase, and that's when most of Oklahoma became part of the United States, most of the state became part of the United States. So in 1803, there would have been four or five tribes in and out of Oklahoma. Dominant would have been the Osage from the northwest. We would have had Caddo, Wichita, Comanche, Kiowa, 
perhaps even the Cheyenne occasionally coming down, but then other tribes would hunt through Oklahoma, a rich ecosystem where the wooded east meets the high plains of the west. So the French came here as early as the 1720s trading with these tribes. So it was a rich culture of Indian tribes, all nomadic, all coming and going, no permanent settlements but land that they called their own. Well, that is all changed when the five civilized tribes are removed from their homelands in the American Southeast. So largely from Georgia, uh, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, and they're, all five tribes are moved to what they called at that time the Indian Territory, which was everything south of Kansas to the international border, which was the border with Texas. Why were they moved? Uh, they moved because the Americans wanted their land. And uh, they wanted it for cotton culture because the South, of course, with the cotton gin invented in the 1790s that made cotton culture much more profitable. And the institution of African-American slavery became embedded in American history at the same time in the 1790s and early 1800s. Well, those planters wanted the land where the five tribes were located. United States government effects had moved west of the Mississippi River. We'll give you land there. We will pay you for what you're leaving behind. The Trail of Tears is what uh, historians call the last episode when the last several hundred thousand Cherokees were removed out of Georgia and Tennessee to the west. But by the 1830s, late 1830s, all five tribes are in what is now Oklahoma. This is the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw. Uh, Seminole and uh, Muscogee Creek. All five tribes bring with them the institution of African-American slavery. You, mm -hmm. you mentioned they were called at the time the five civilized tribes, and that's because they adopted some European traditions and cultures, and I guess now American traditions and cultures, including the institution of slavery. Exactly. Now, from a European-centric point of view, some of those tribes were civilized because they had written syllabaries, they had newspapers, they had written constitutions, they had uh, governments with executive, legislative, and judicial branches, they had some form of law. But the mixed blood leadership that had adopted the constitutions generally bring with them to the West African-American slavery. Can we just pause there for a second? Because most of us in America, when we think of American slavery, the enslavement of African-American people in the United States, we do not think of Native Americans. Is it the same type of slavery that you might see on the plantation of a white slave owner, maybe in Georgia in 1752? Or are there customs with regards to slavery different? Well, that depended by tribe, and even each master would have been different. But slavery is slavery. Uh, it is an evil institution. And you mentioned that you are of Native American ancestry as well. May I ask which tribe you're a part of? Uh, Cherokee. Not not on the rolls. Typical of, of many people in Oklahoma because of intermarriage over five generations. The rules of being on the rolls for the five tribes is that you had to have lived in that territory for a certain number of years before enrollment with the Cherokees in 1904. Mm -hmm. So I cannot say I'm a Cherokee citizen. I would not dare say that. But Cherokee heritage is part of my family that comes from Claremore, Oklahoma, 
the birthplace of Will Rogers and his father, a Cherokee plantation operator who had African-American slaves. Yes, we come from that tradition. Okay. So the five tribes, they arrive here in Oklahoma. Between what years and what time period is that? Really between the 18 teens is when some of the early settlers arrive and as late as the 18, late 1830s. So already as early as what the 1860s, you're starting to see different ethnicities and cultures blending in and then into the area we now know as Tulsa and what was called Indian Territory back then. And then the Emancipation Proclamation is written and signed and slaves are declared free. Now we know that, you know, in the South, a lot of enslaved people didn't know they were free for a long time, but at least it seemed like there was some sort of urgency to sort of complete the transactions between the allotment that the Native Americans received um, because of the treaties that they signed with the U.S. government that was giving them land, and you can speak more to that. And then the slaves were also given land because they had Native American ancestry in their blood. Is that correct? Well, partly, but also all of their connections, they came from the American South. They came from Georgia and Tennessee and Mississippi. So they came from Southern culture. So the same forces at work in the South were at work here. Uh, All of the trade, all of the rivers out of Oklahoma flow to the South. So all your connections were South. Your political institutions were Southern. Your white ancestry would have come out of the South. And so the mixed blood culture was Southern, economically, socially, and even ethnically. And so they tended to side with the South. The full bloods wanted to stay out of it. They didn't care. It wasn't their fight. Uh, And the Cherokees and Muscogee Creek were split almost 50-50. But all of them were punished, whether they had some fighting for the North or not. They were all punished in 1866. We call them the Reconstruction Treaties were negotiated with each of the of the five tribes. In each of these, the radical Republicans in Congress fulfilled their promise of 40 acres and a mule. That's a famous statement. They told those slaves in Virginia and and South Carolina, now that we freed you, we've got to we got to take those economic shackles off now that the legal shackles are off and give you 40 acres and a mule and give you a chance. Well, they didn't do it anywhere except Oklahoma. Part of that is because Lincoln was assassinated, right? Right. And radical Republicans kind of take his idea of Reconstruction was going to be moderate. He said, let's bring the, the southern states back in and find a way to live together under certain conditions. But the radical re- Republicans take over in 66 and 67. They impeach the president. And so they say, no, nah, we're going to really do something about it. Well, they lose power quick enough. By 76, the North gives up on the South and says, hey, do what you want with your African-American population. But out here in the West, they stuck in those treaties in 1866 that the former slaves and their descendants would be given land at any time that the communally owned lands are divided into private ownership. That's there in all five tribes. So fast forward to the loss of sovereignty in the 1870s and 80s. By the 18, late 70s and early 80s, white people already outnumber Indians in the, in the Indian Territory. Then you have the land runs, and then Congress forces the tribes to allot their communally owned lands to individuals. Where does the mm-hmm. Dawes Act come in in all of this? That's the commission that did the allotment for all five tribes. 
And so the DOS Commission is created. They come west as if a bunch of old white guys from the east can tell Indians who's an Indian or not, but they do. They confiscate all the tribal records, they take agency records, and they put together these commissions. So as if you're a Cherokee in the Cherokee Nation, you go to them and say, here, this is who I am, this is my Cherokee ancestry, here I am on that 1872 census. So you're listed, you get land. Uh, Then they asked the freedmen to come in. So there were still former slaves alive in the 1890s. And so they come forward, but so do their children and their grandchildren, and say, hi, I am the descendant of David Miller, who was a Chickasaw slave, who was freed in 1866 legally, and I am still here, and they get on the rolls. And so then when the DOS Commission makes a decision, where's all this land going to be distributed, those African-American former slaves and their descendants who did not grow up in slavery, but grew up on the frontier, being treated like all the other frontiersmen, say, yes, I want that 40 acres, that 60 acres, that 80, depending on the value of the land. Can you just explain why the U.S. government decided to allot what essentially would have been free land to Native Americans and former slaves? Well, they did the allotment because it was in the treaties of 1866. But why did and so they the tribes had to, the tribes did not want to do that. The tribes fought to keep the African Americans from getting the land, but they lost. What I don't understand is what incentive would the U.S. government that for y- hundreds of years enslaved black people, what incentive would they have to then put in a treaty that these African Americans who are recently free can now have land? Well, as I said, the radical Republicans were real reformers. This would have been the age of Thaddeus Stevens being one of the leading voices, whereas he may have been uh, ostracized as a radical before the war, even during the war. After the war, the radical Republicans take over. They're, these are the reformers from Boston and New York and Philadelphia. The, uh, this would have been the age of the ascendancy of the Quakers in the peace policy of U.S. Grant. Well, they want to reform, and they want to give those former slaves a chance. And a chance in the 19th century at New Hope was land. Land was golden. That's where you could break the cycle of poverty. They understood that. Let's give them land. We'll break the cycle of poverty. We'll break the cycle of enslavement that we now know as as uh, sharecropping and tenancy and lack of ability to vote. You know. The law of the land by 1896 of Plessy versus Ferguson was separate but equal is okay. That's a total defeat of what the radical Republicans would have been fighting for. But there are still people who respect the law. It was in the treaties. That's the way it was going to be done. The DOS Commission had those orders using those treaties as legal precedent. And so they fulfilled the promise made in 1866. Fascinating. That's really just unusual also because, like you mentioned, there was the Emancipation Proclamation and then the 40 acres and a mule and Lincoln was behind it and then he was assassinated and so then it never happened. But in this western part of the United States, you have African Americans being given what you said was essentially gold to sort of have a chance at life. And that's something that a lot of black people just did not get. Well, and part of the reason too is that the Congress and the white majority of the East would take land away from Indians to give to African Americans. They would not have taken it away from white people. 
<laughs> that's just the way it would have been at the time. So perception was that there's all this land and very few Indians. There's plenty of land to do it. We don't care about the Indians anyway. We're going to take away their governments. We're going to deny them their spirituality, their language, their ancient ways. Let them be good little Americans. Eugene Herod, I know you're a professor at the Muskogee College. Can you just explain what it is you do there? I teach. I teach uh, land issues, which deals with trust land, allotment land, uh, restricted land. I also teach native history and um, native government. Can I just ask, are you part of the Creek Nation or Muskogee Nation? Yes. I am uh, an enrolled citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Okay, so can you just, if you could describe for us what the Trail of Tears was like? Uh, Some of the anecdotes I read, uh, people that had fought in the Red Stick, White Stick Civil War in 1814 against the U.S. government, they were brought here in chains. There were individuals that had contracted with the U.S. government to help transport uh, some of these natives uh, one, another narrative involved a boat called the Monmouth, M-O-N-M-O-U-T-H. And there were about 300 natives, creeks that were uh, on this boat, just pushed in there. Boat sank and killed all 300 of the passengers. Uh, there's no marker for the grave. Starvation, exposure, sickness. Uh, we lost about a fourth of our people through death. One anecdote, I recall an older uh, person saying that had survived that and lived in, uh, to the early 1900s, said that at the end of the trail, when they stopped at Fort Gibson in Indian Territory, that there were no babies left. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty bad. Wow, that's yeah. horrible. Why were they called civilized? Some tribes attempted to emulate and assimilate as best as they could, the patterns of these Europeans that were coming here. They actually owned slaves, uh, which is where the freedmen come from. Um, There were individuals in the southern part of the Creek Nation that were called Southern Creeks. They had assimilated, intermixed, and actually some of them had plantations and owned slaves. So when they were forcibly removed, the slave, their slaves were also forcibly removed and made the same trek. So they were on that trail too. That's often overlooked. Uh, the Cherokee, who were highly assimilated, they had slaves and plantations and didn't treat their slaves any different probably than their so-called white counterparts. History is complex like that, you know. Something I was um, wondering is... When I first realized that some of the Native Americans that you just mentioned own slaves, it really shocked me, not only because I'd never learned that, I'd actually double majored in undergrad in journalism and Africana studies. So I couldn't believe that in all of my classes, I'd never learned that. But also the history of Native American people in America, the genocide that took place. It just seems to me that if you're somebody who's ancestors went through that, whose family members were going through that, you'd be less inclined to own another human being because you understand what that kind of brutality can do 
to a people, and yet some Native Americans, it didn't bother them. Right. Let me throw this in, too. Uh, as late as 1750, there were more slaves in the Americas than there were African. They also used us as slaves in the Northeast. After King Philip's War, I believe in 1678, survivors they would just capture and send them to the West Indies for slavery. These are all natives. On Columbus's second voyage, he took about 200 natives back to Spain. Two thirds of them died. You've seen, I'm, see, I'm sure you've seen lithographs of ships that had Africans on. They did it the same way. And again, Columbus's second voyage, uh, he took about 200 individuals uh, back as slaves. Um, the Spanish had a system called encomienda. And in the Southwest, they would use natives as slaves to build their missions uh, to keep them maintained. So uh, slavery covered natives as well as Africans. Um, yeah. Remember, too, that when the Civil War started, you had Confederate agents come up to Indian territory and uh, tried to get the Indians to participate in the Civil War. Some did, some didn't. Uh, even the ones that didn't were still punished along with the ones that did after the war because they lost half their territory. Right, because a lot of Native Americans, like you said, had owned slaves and were siding with the Confederacy because they wanted to continue the institution of slavery. Right. But there were a lot that didn't and just, you know, uh, but they were, you know, lost land anyway. Now, allotment wasn't until 1884. It was, uh, there was a senator from Massachusetts, Thomas Dawes, D-A-W-E-S, that started the, uh, uh, thought it would be a good idea to give adults, males and females, uh, 160 acres. And then once you would get that, you were supposed to be a farmer and live happily ever after. And this now, was then, Native Americans and? And freedmen. Freedmen. It did work out. I mean, they lost a lot of land through fraud, deceit. Uh, so they forced allotment on us. And also getting back to the so-called five tribes, the freed, former freedmen were also given allotments. Now, the freedmen also in the Creek Nation had tribal towns. They had three tribal towns. They could speak Creek. They participated in our ceremonies. There was even an African that was a uh, uh, tribal chair in 1875. And all this is because a lot of these freedmen were once slaves that belonged to some of these native tribes? They didn't belong to the tribes. They belonged to individuals. I see. And and I hate to use that term, belong. I mean, how how can you own another human being? That's Uh, slavery. Yeah, that's slavery. Anyway, among the Creeks, there were three African tribal towns among the Creeks. Uh, there are probably others, but I'm more familiar with the Creeks. And they were given allotment land. So after this time, um, at, at the time you mentioned that the, the land was, you know, taken away from Native Americans through various means, unscrupulous people, so on and so forth. You mentioned they were just surviving. What was the dynamic like in Indian territory between the freedmen and the Native Americans, and then obviously perhaps the Caucasians that are also starting to come in through the so-called land runs where the U.S. government would open up land in Indian territory and Oklahoma territory so that people could stake their claim and begin to cultivate it and grow the agricultural economy. 
1866 treaty gave freedmen the right to be free. So there was a treaty that allowed... Between, between Creek Nation and the U.S. government. And, and this treaty was forced on all the other tribes as well. So that, so that treaty essentially freed any the slaves slave. that were living among Native Americans. Right. The Emancipation Proclamation was in 1863. That was something from Lincoln. This is completely different. Then the Dawes Act allowed them to have uh, allotment land. But even after 1866, between 1866 and the Dawes era, uh, the freedmen could vote. There was one tribal chair whose tribal chairman for one year. He was a former freedman. They had freedmen on tribal council. So they did pers- uh, participate in the government. You know, the entire point in this episode is to really establish some of the seeds that were planted for the racial and ethnic unrest that developed and sort of spawned not only the Tulsa race massacre, but also other riots that we saw around Oklahoma. So I guess in, in from a Native American perspective, what were the dynamics like between Native Americans and other communities that existed in Oklahoma in the late 19th century, early 20th century? Yeah. Oklahoma adopted a lot of Jim Crow laws, similar to what Southern states passed. Uh, It was mainly directed toward African-Americans. But at the same time, uh, a lot of us were forced to attend these BIA boarding schools that were set up in the late 1800s. I was uh, attended one in Southern Oklahoma uh, during my childhood. We were bused to a local church and we had to sit in the balcony, you know. Uh, it was a, a Southern Baptist denomination, which was established in 1846. And you had to sit in the balcony because you were Native American? Yeah. Hey, because we of segregation. Close. Yeah, we were, at least we were closer to heaven. That was the running joke. <laughs> so BIA, can you just explain for people who don't know what that is, what BIA is? BIA, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, is an agency within the Department of the Interior. It used to be part of the Department of War until 1849. Gotcha. And they moved it to the Department of the Interior. Uh, But uh, the Southern Baptist denomination broke away from the First Baptist Convention in 1846 solely for their support of slavery. That edict was not rescinded until 1997 when it was, the organization was headed by an African-American. Was there some sense of resentment, animosity, hostility among Native Americans towards the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century for everything that had happened up until that point? Yeah. Was there resentment there? Yes, definitely. And how how did the community or the various tribal communities, how did they deal with that? How did they handle that? You know, at, at the end of the 1800s, they were just broken. I remember uh, recall uh, reading uh, Black Elk Speaks by John Neinhardt. And Black Elk was a veteran of uh, uh, Little Bighorn. He was 14 years old. Uh, and at Wounded Knee, they, uh, the uh, U.S. military killed about 300 natives, including women and children. And where is Wounded Knee? 
in South Dakota. And uh, the individuals operating the Gatlin guns were all awarded medals of honor that were never taken away. Uh, and I remember Black Elk speaking to John Neinhardt saying, you know, uh, the dream of a people died that day. And it was a beautiful dream. And I knew exactly what he meant. I could feel it. And that's the way a lot of us felt at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. We were just beat. You got to remember when Columbus first got here, there were probably 20 million people within what's now the United States. By 1900, there were only 250,000. And then you have historians denying a genocide. So you can even start to see some of those seeds of racial animus and racial tensions developing even among the Native American community in Oklahoma at that time. Yes. An excerpt from the book Tulsa, 1921, Reporting a Massacre, by Tulsa World Reporter Randy Crabiel. At some point, the when or how unrecorded, the Lochapoca settlement acquired the name Tulasi, Old Town in the Muscogee Creek language. Over time, Tulasi became Tulsi or Tulsi Town, and finally Tulsa. The bitter, highly personal violence of the Civil War in Indian Territory scattered Tulasi's inhabitants, but the name lingered, attached to an undefined area that included the sprawling fields and pasture land of the Perrymans. The family had been among the earliest Creek immigrants to the Indian Territory, arriving from Alabama in 1828 with a party that advocated voluntary resettlement beyond the Mississippi. The Perryman patriarch, Benjamin, was a man of prominence, whose Muscogee name, Stichakomiko, translates as Great King. He was among those who signed the Treaty of Fort Gibson of 1833 and represented the Creeks at a great intertribal conference the following year. In 1836, Benjamin and his oldest son, Samuel, sat for the portraitist, George Catlin. Benjamin Perryman brought with him to Indian Territory six sons and two daughters. All became important figures in the Creek Nation and its history. One son, Louis Perryman, established a trading post a few miles southeast of the Lochapoca settlement in about 1848. His large and diverse household included 19 children and three or four wives, polygamy being common among the Creeks. The naturalist S.W. Woodhouse, passing through the area in 1849, wrote that Louis Perryman, quote, showed evidently that he had considerable Negro blood in him, end quote. A photograph of Lewis Perryman's son, Lagos, twice elected principal chief of the Creek Nation, also suggests possible African ancestry. Certainly, mixed parentage was not unusual among the Creeks. Blacks, free and enslaved, had been part of tribal society for decades. Benjamin Perryman's ancestry is uncertain and the identity of his wife or wives is unknown. So the notion that one of Tulsa's founding families might have been of African as well as Indian and European extraction is plausible. But that does not mean it has been widely embraced. The reference to Lewis Perryman's, quote, Negro blood was excised from an edition of Woodhouse's journal published in 1992. 
Now you're going to hear Gates interview a woman named Thelma Dietta Perryman Gray, who is a descendant of some of Tulsa's early founders, including both natives as well as African Americans. studies uh, Tulsa history, who knows any little thing about Tulsa, knows that it was founded by Creek Indians and that 18th and Cheyenne and Tulsa is the council oak tree where the Creeks uh, brought their sacred fire from their home in Georgia. And uh, the, the names connected with the founding of Tulsa, the name most heard is the Perrimans, uh, the Perrimans, George, Lewis, and others. And we, of course, know that uh, the, the original Perrymans and uh, Graysons and other uh, Creek tribes intermarried frequently. And so many of these uh, Scottish traders like uh, Perryman, like Grayson, many of those Scottish traders uh, came into this region uh, as early as the 1700s, 1800s. They intermarried with Indian women. But what isn't told in the history books is that they also married black women and had families. And those were conveniently left out of the history book. Now the time is opening up for telling the entire history of all people. And that's what we're trying to do today, get a little history about the Perrimans, the founders, the Creek Indian founders of Tulsa, and about their black relatives. And uh, we're talking today to Thelma Dietta Perryman Gray. She is a descendant of the Perrymans who founded the city. Her, her father was John Frederick Perryman, and her mother was Luella Bertha Grayson Perryman. Thank you, Mrs. Gray, for talking to us today. And would you just kind of tell us where you were born and what it was like then and about your fathers and his Indian ways and so forth? I was born on it was near 21st Street, 21st and Mingo Creek, and it was so beautiful there. My uh, father, when I was a little girl, he used to take us in the wagon and he would go to the Indian camp. And I remember they had a lot of pots cooking all around, and, and my father was trying to teach them something about web and something about steel that they didn't know. I don't know whether it was the wheels or what, but he was showing them how to use that because they had begun to use wagons and chains and not have to depend on the horses. They had better road or wagon roads or pathways or whatever they had called them to take them uh, from one place to another and they began to use horses and wagons and harnesses. And my father would show them how to fix those kind of things. I remember that when I was a very little girl, and I know we would fish there and play with the kids in the water. In the next episode, We'll explore why Oklahoma was seen as a promised land for so many people in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, despite the challenges the state faced, particularly with regard to racial tensions between the various groups of different ethnicities who inhabited Oklahoma at the time. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to follow and like us on social media, including Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for Black Wall Street 1921. And make sure you visit our website, blackwallstreet-1921.com, and join our mailing list so you can stay up to date on all of our episodes. Thank you.